And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And one ran and filling a sponge full of vinegar, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that he thus breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph, and Salome, who, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered to him, and also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, And Pilate wondered if he were already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. And he bought bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn from the rock. And he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb." Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever seen a house burn down? It is an overwhelming experience. When you see the fire, the intensity, the heat, the power, you feel so helpless. It's overwhelming. It was years ago when Marsh and I were living in Houston that we decided to build a house. We'd gotten ourselves some land. It was on an acre and a half. It was a subdivision where everybody lived on one and a half to Uh, to five acres of land. It wasn't fully developed, and so you didn't have a lot of neighbors. We had designed the house. We had taken our ideas to an architect. She turned it into some working drawings, and then we went out and set about building it. We formed the foundation. We dug the beams. We tied the steel. We started framing the house. One day, we'd been out there working on the home when Marcia needed to go run to the school to pick up the kids, And I was on framing up on the second floor when she came driving back up, rolled down the window and said, there's a house on fire. Well, I'd seen some smoke, but people burn lots of things out in the country. When I looked that direction, though, I knew exactly where that home was. It was out by itself. I ran down and jumped in the pickup truck and I went driving over to the house. And I got there just a couple of moments before the fire trucks arrived. It was easy to see who the owner of the house was. It was a gentleman I would later discover in his early 70s. 
He and his wife lived there. He was retired from the Air Force. He'd spent a lifetime traveling around the world, collecting wonderful antiques and memorabilia. And now he was running into the house trying to drag what furniture he could out of his home. I asked him if I could help him, and he was so very grateful. It was just the two of us who started running into his house, picking up a piece of furniture and trying to haul it outside. Whatever things were at this end of the house where we felt it was safe, the firemen started working where the fire had started on the other end of the house. And they seemed to be making good progress at maybe getting this thing under control when they ran out of water. They had already called for another pumper truck, but it had not arrived. And we were out in the country. There were no fire hydrants. So suddenly the firefighters found themselves standing there with nothing to be able to do as they watched these flames reignite and begin to intensify. We no longer felt it was safe to go into the home, so we started picking up everything we'd gotten just outside the house and tried to carry it further away from the home in order to protect those things. He already knew what had happened. As I was standing there beside him, watching this house literally burn to the ground. Through his sobs, he began to say, If only I hadn't been working on the gas tank for our car. If only I hadn't been also charging the battery in the garage. If only I hadn't gone in to eat lunch. You know, if only they hadn't run out of water. I mean, it was so painful to listen to him wanting to step back just one hour, not work on that gas tank, not start charging that battery. Don't do too many things at one time. How do they have what he just, if only we hadn't done this, if only I hadn't done that. It was so painful. I can remember it was like it's yesterday because I have thought about it so many times through my life of how many times do you and I say, if only. We all have those moments. We all have those moments when we are looking back on our lives and we just start thinking, if only I hadn't made that decision, if only I hadn't done that, how different my life would be. If only I, I'd stayed in school and got a better education. If only I hadn't gotten married so young. If only I'd married the right spouse. If only I'd taken a different career. If only I'd made a different financial decision. If only I'd taken care of my health. We come up with all kinds of things we look back on and it's our if-only moments. They happen to us all. And that's really what I believe we were reading right here for the disciples this morning in our scripture lesson was their if-only moment. Mark is telling us this passage and it's all about the crucifixion of Jesus, His agony and how He dies. But he goes on to tell us that there were women there at the cross. There was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome 
and many other women who had followed from Galilee. Now you need to understand when Mark tells us this scripture, gives us this scripture, tells us this story, he's not just trying to tell you who's there at the crucifixion. He's trying to tell you who's not there. That's just as important part of the story. It's not who is there, who's not there. And who's not there? Disciples. No mention of them. They would talk about how after Jesus died, it was Joseph of Arimathea, a a Jewish leader there in the Sanhedrin. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body, wrapped it in a linen shroud to go lay it in the tomb. If you read, remember reading earlier in Mark, we will read about how John the Baptist was killed. And when he was killed and beheaded, it was his disciples who came to get his body and to bury it. When Jesus died, there were no disciples to take down his body. No disciples to lay it in the tomb. No, that would go to Joseph of Arimathea. Mark tells you the story because he wants you to see Who's not there? And if you start thinking about the disciples and wrapping it around this scripture, you can only imagine that after the crucifixion, the disciples are together saying, if only we should have known what was going on with Judas. If only we'd have known we could have stopped it. If only we would have all stood up there in the garden and fought for a little while and let Jesus escape. If only in the courtyard I'd have stood up and said that I know him, spoken in his behalf. If only would have had the courage to be at the cross so he didn't die alone and take down his body because we're his disciples. If only. They had to be living in that moment with all of the decisions they had made that now they felt so painful and how they had failed. What a difficult moment. And it really is a moment that all of us can relate to. I want to continue on with this sermon series this morning in matters of life and death and life. You know, we've said during the season of Lent, you and I need to be looking at our lives and just being honest, examining our lives and how are we living in the light of God's grace and in the awareness of death. Because it's the awareness of death that tells us it is important to be living fully now. And we can live fully now in the light of God's grace. This is not about looking at our lives to beat ourselves up, to start feeling guilty Now, this is about trying to look at our lives honestly in the light of God's grace and in the awareness of death. Because Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So I believe that if you and I are going to live abundantly, if we are going to live well, we've got to make peace with the past. We've got to make peace with our if-only moments. If-only moments. I'd have done it different. It's when you and I can make peace with that and embrace our past that I believe you and I can live an abundant life. It's what I want us to think about this morning. And I just want to say two things. And first of all, 
I believe it's our faith that tells us we can embrace our humanness. We can embrace our imperfections. We can embrace our failures. Because you see, failure is never the final word on our lives because of God's grace. The goal in life is not to be perfect. We often make it that. We often think the only way we're going to be happy or do what we need is when we are perfect. You and I are human. We are imperfect. We will always make mistakes. We will always come up short and fail. It's a part of the human condition. Our faith enables us to embrace the most important thing in life, and that is to be growing. Growing in our ability to love, growing in knowledge. It's about growing. It's not about being perfect. Failure is never the final word on our lives. We're able to continue to try. You know, one of the great feel-good stories of our Winter Olympics that came out came from our U.S. Olympic men's curling team. Now, you know, curling isn't the thing that keeps me on the edge of my seat. Uh, if, you, if you ran some sort of a survey on the top 10 sports in the U.S., curling probably isn't going to make the list. I know that for myself, I, I get interested in curling every four years. Every four years when it shows up at the Olympic, it does get kind of interesting when you see these guys sliding these granite rocks and people are out in front brushing as fast as they can. And it just kind of looks interesting as you watch them doing this. And you don't hear about curling for another four years. Well, our U.S. Olympic team, back in 2010 in Vancouver, we won last place. Last place. We're not too strong in curling. That was in 2010. So we decided we're going to do better. And in 2014 in Sochi, we did do better. We came in next to last. So at the end of 2014, the United States Olympic Curling Federation decided to do something about it. And what they wanted to do about it, they were going to create this intensive training program, choose 10 of our best curlers, and they would work with them to help them do better in the Olympics. Well, John Schuster was the captain of the Olympic curling team in 2010 and 2014. And when he heard what they were going to do, he was thrilled. He thought that's what we need to do, this intensive training, get serious about our sport. And they decided they would have this um, combine where you could come and everybody could try out and they'd choose their 10. He didn't even get an invitation. The captain of the Olympic curling team, the last two Olympics, didn't get an invitation to even try out. It hadn't gone well. He had failed. And boy, everybody talked about it on social media in such a mean way. Didn't get an invitation. And he said, you know, that hurt. To be that rejected, turned away. He struggled with that and he had to decide, am I going to now just let it die? Is it over? Or do I want to continue on? And after some deep soul searching, he thought he wants to continue on. So he went to a friend of his who also used to be in curling, who had retired and was now running a liquor store. And he said, you want to join a curling team? 
And then he had another friend who had been invited to try out and got cut. And he invited him to come try with him. And then he had another friend who went, was invited to try out and also got cut. And so the four of them decided they would form their own curling team to compete. And of course they got named by other people as Team Reject. Here you had been the curling captain, didn't get invited to even try out. Two other guys got cut. Another one was not also invited to try. Team Reject. And they got together to decide to try. So they formed their own team. They started curling. And lo and behold, in 2015, they won the U.S. National Curling Championship. Our national championship. In 2016, they came in fifth in the world. At the end of 2016, the U.S. Olympic Federation on Curling came to them and said, We're sorry. Would you come back and join the fold? In 2017, they won the national championship. And when they had the qualifying rounds for the Olympics, they won again. Team reject. No one who was invited to even come and participate. They would now be the team to represent us in in the games there in Korea. And they went to Korea with such high hopes. And it started the same way all over again. Six games, they won two, they lost four. One more loss, they would be eliminated and a good chance to win last place again. And that night after the fourth loss, John Schuster went out and just kind of went up on a hillside overlooking this Olympic venue. And he thought to himself, I I don't want, I don't want my children showing my grandkids all this Olympic footage and all they ever see is me lose. I'm better than that. And he began to feel a sense of peace. And he came back and talked to the rest of the team and they knew that the goal was they had to literally win out. And their very next opponent was Canada who was world champion gold. They were great. They beat us always like a drum. We played Canada and we won. But then we had to play Switzerland and they were every bit as good as Canada. And we won. And then we had to play Britain. And they always beat us. And we won. And suddenly we were now in the medal competition rounds. No one could have possibly believed this. But now to play, to have a chance for a medal, we had to play Canada again. And we won. And suddenly we were now going to be in the final game. Gold and silver was at stake. It would be the first time we had ever won gold or silver. And we were playing Sweden, who was ranked the best in the world. They play ten ends. It's like an inning. And it was in the eighth inning that John Schuster was able to make the throw that knocked the Swedes out of the place. And we scored five points and it guaranteed a win gold medal. For the first time in Olympic history, the men's U.S. curling team was going to win gold. And you may have seen the Olympic ceremony. They're always so moving when you get up there and the team stands and they play the national anthem and all you've been through and you've won and they gave them all their gold medals and they came off the stand and they got there, were just so thrilled and they looked down their medals and it read, women's curling. 
They'd given them the wrong medals. Kind of appropriate for team reject. They soon got it straightened out. But I was watching this commentator, and I mean, it was so unbelievable. It was just like a movie script. And he was going, we've never seen anything like this. And I thought to myself, and you never would have seen this if it hadn't been for four men who decided that failure was not the final word on their lives. We all have them. We are imperfect. We are human. We make mistakes. The good news of our grace, of God's grace, is failure is not the final word. We continue to try. You know, on Thursday night, I went down to OCCC. I was down there for our El Sistema concert. And our kids are so amazing. That's our after-school program where we're teaching children how to play classical music. I I was there five years ago when we started the program. We had about 100 students, and I was there on the day that they got their instrument and opened their case. And what the teachers had to teach them to do was, how do you pick up your flute? How do you pick up your French horn? How do you hold your violin? I mean, they didn't know anything. Five years ago, and now five years later, let me tell you, these children are amazing. They are amazing, the quality of their music. And I've gotten to know some of them, and there's one young man, he's a cellist, and, and I've really been excited about how well he is doing. He was applying to a special program. You know, I've told you how we now are a part of the um, a Carnegie Hall program, where Carnegie Hall partners with other programs like we are around the country. It's a very select group, a small group, where they believe there's such potential to teach children uh, how to play classical music, learn about instruments. They give a grant to these programs. Our teachers go to New York and they meet with other teachers from around the country. Some other people around the country are going to come to Oklahoma City now and see how we are doing it. But our students also get to audition, create a tape, and they apply to get to go to New York and be there for several weeks in the summer to learn and to play with other kids from around the country, a youth orchestra, and play in Carnegie Hall. And I'm thinking, these are our kids, our inner city kids around us who five years ago had no vision of playing an instrument and had no idea what Carnegie Hall was. And I knew this young man had applied, he'd cut his tape, and and so I, I was talking to Robin Hilger, who was in charge of our program, and I, I said, Robin, has he heard? She said, I talked to him this week. I was asking the same thing. I said, have you gotten a letter? He said, yes. I didn't get in. And she said, after he paused for a moment, he said, but it's okay. It just means I'm going to try harder, and I'll apply again next year. And he smiled and went on his way. And I thought, that's what the program is about. It's not about making world-class musicians. It's about trying to teach these young people the important values of life. That failure doesn't have to be the final word on your life. 
You're not perfect. You're going to try. You're going to fail. The issue is, will you try again? Will you keep on trying versus you're going to quit? And I thought, this young man is already a success and he is going to be successful in his life because he gets it. The disciples had just had a colossal failure. And now on the other side of the crucifixion, the question was not, can you still be a disciple? After what you've done, can you still be a disciple? That wasn't the question. The question was, will you still go be my disciple? Will you still try? That was what Jesus was asking out of them. Will you still try? It was not, can you be a disciple? But will you go? Jesus would say to them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you to the end of time. Ah, I got a commission for you. It's called the Great Commission. The Great Commission didn't come until after the colossal failure. After their if-only moment, then God gave them a calling to go into the world. The question was not, can you still be a disciple? The question was, will you still try? Failure is never the final word because of God's grace. And so secondly, it is because of God's grace that you and I are able to embrace our past and still have a vision for the future. That's what God gives us, a vision for the future. It is important that you and I are able to embrace our if-only moments. We embrace them. We learn from them. But we don't live there. God turns us and gives us a focus on the future. Where are we going? What are the possibilities? That's the gift of God's amazing grace. What is the future going to look like? You know, it's been said that what happened in the past isn't as important as how we think about it. And how you think about it is determined by God's grace. A grace where you can embrace your humanness and your frailties and your imperfections and understand that God still gives us a vision for the future of what can we be? Who is God calling us to be? Where is God calling us to go? We are not trapped by the past. There is the future. That's what the disciples would learn. That after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, they were given a great commission. They were given a vision of what they could go out and do in the world. And they did it. They would never forget the moment. The if only. But they went to live in spite of it. On Thursday, I was down at OCCC to go see Elsa Stemma. On Friday, I was back at OCCC 
I went down to go hear a concert by Judy Collins. Based on your age, we'll determine whether you know who Judy Collins is or not. For those of you who are younger and don't know, Judy Collins was a folk singer, um, a, um, a pop singer back in the 1960s and 70s. Though truthfully, she's continued to record all the way up to today, still records, still gives concerts and travels, but her big days were the 1960s and 70s. She's now 78 years old. And so she was putting on a concert down at OCCC, and, you know, she's 78. She doesn't hit the high notes like she did in her 20s, but it was so fun to hear her sing. You know, we were down there, and what I soon began to realize when we were there to, to hear this concert was we were there to hear her sing her songs that really touched all of us back in those tumultuous days. I mean, she sang the songs, Send in the Clouds, um, Someday Soon, um, From Both Sides Now. I mean, she won Grammy Awards. She had gold and platinum records and albums. She had great, great success. But she was so very involved in the 1960s, and she was an activist. She was so young then, in her 20s. But she was so passionate, and, and she made such a, a statement in all the things that she was doing. But her life was also very tumultuous, just like for the rest of us. I mean, in the 60s and the 70s, the struggles with the Vietnam War. If you didn't live through that, you don't really know what America was like in the 60s and the struggles we had with Vietnam the struggle with civil rights that were going on. Our country was in such turmoil. And it was an interesting kind of time. And so when I was there that night, what I could tell was all of us who were there really were there to kind of just be taken back into the past, to relive, relive some of those past moments. And those songs that spoke to our hearts and made us all think about our life back in the 60s and the 70s and in those tumultuous days. She went through the concert, and whenever she sang one of those songs, boy, she got strong applause. We all loved it. She came to the end, and she sang um, Send in the Clowns, which is probably her most famous. And then her concert was over. We stood and gave her a standing ovation. She left, and, and we kept clapping, and she came back for one more song, just like the good old concerts. She came back for one more song, and when she came back, she said, I, I'd like to sing a song, and I'd like for you to join in with me. And she started to sing a cappella. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. After the concert was over, I had a chance to be back and visit with Judy. And I knew part of this story, and so I, I asked her, I said, is it true that it was your grandmother who taught you how to sing that song at an early age? And she said, absolutely. You read in her books where she talks about her life, and she'll talk about how this song, Amazing Grace, kind of became an anchor for her, a foundation. That through the tumultuous time when her life was out of control, somehow this song would always bring you back to center, give you a grounding, give you a strength. I, I knew the story of when she was in her 
20s, living in New York. She was a part of the Greenwich Village scene, all the avant-garde singers of that day. And they had what they called encounter groups back then. Some will remember those. Groups where you'd get together with your friends and you got honest and you told them what you thought and we're going to communicate and get it out in the open. And they would kind of rotate from apartment to apartment, friends' houses. They were meeting at her apartment and once they started talking, this one got mad and that one got offended and that one got mad and soon everybody was hollering and screaming at one another. Her music producer was there and he said, Judy, you got to do something. And she started to sing Amazing Grace. And then someone else joined in and someone else joined in and someone else joined in. And soon everybody was singing Amazing Grace and it brought them all back to center in a sense of peace. And it was her director who said, you need to record that. And so in 1970 she did. In the midst of our tumultuous time as a country, she went and recorded Amazing Grace as a pop song. And it went up the Billboard pop chart to number 15. And it was there for four months. Because whether you're religious or not, when you heard the song, somehow it'd speak to your soul and give you grounding and bring you back. Judy had needed that through her life. She started off as a concert pianist as a child and then turn more to guitar and music, more with, Bo, uh, with Seeger and, and with Bob Dylan. And She got into the scene, and as a young woman, she got married. Maybe married too early. They had a child right off the bat, a son. The marriage didn't work, and they got a divorce. She turned to alcohol and soon was, she said, addicted to alcohol. She struggled with that until she finally got in control of that. Decided to stop smoking. And when she did, she started eating out of control. And then she wanted to conquer that and she developed bulimia and had a tremendous struggle with her health. And then when her son was 33 years old, he died. Her only child. She went through a life of such great success and such great failures, such joy and such pain, just as we all have. And so when she came to the end of her concert and we sang, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind. But now I see. She then asked us to sing one more verse, and I thought it was interesting, the verse that she chose. We followed her right on. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe thus far. And grace will lead us home. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. 
It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.